dirt road in a gooseneck saddle up with me dry land in god's country crops far as i can see the headlights on both ends of my day this country Folks, to HPJ Talk, the podcast from High Plains Journal, bringing the ag news and commentary of the week to you. I'm Jennifer Amlatsky, and I'm joined by my colleague, Kayleen Scott. Hey, Kayleen. Hey, Jenny. So, have you seen all of the fuss this week online about the uh, the Union Pacific's big boy coming through Kansas this week? Yeah, my Facebook is flooded with pictures and videos of people going to see it and I'm a member of some photography pages, and there's some pretty impressive shots of the steam, and then there's some pretty unimpressive ones, but that's just personal opinion. <laughs> I am so jealous because its path went right through Manhattan and then to Junction City, Chapman, Abilene. It was through Ellsworth today and um, Hayes today, and it's going to be parked in Hayes overnight, I guess. Yeah, we should have drove up there. You know, honestly, I... I did think about it. I honestly <laughs> thought about it. But here's the the cool thing. So for those of you out there that may not understand what the fuss is all about over a big engine, um, and maybe it's because my fella is a train nut, but I have heard nothing but big boy locomotive tidbits <laughs> for weeks. Okay, Kayleen? I can imagine. There's only so much small talk you can do. <laughs> <laughs> or you can don't talk at all like my husband and I do at night. <laughs> When you've been together for, what, 17 years, you, you know? just look at each other, look at your phones, look at each other? <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah, don't tell me that. We've only been together for. Don't tell me that the romance goes away, Kayleen, it and does. it's replaced by train locomotive tidbits. <laughs> well, so for those of you out there that are curious, uh, the big boy, there were only 25 of these locomotives ever built by the UP, and they were built in the 1940s specifically to get trains up and over the Rockies. So they mostly traveled between Cheyenne, Wyoming, and Ogden, Utah. And these things are massive, Kayleen. They're like 132 feet long. They weigh over a million pounds. They are about as big as I saw online. They are a large school bus and um, another car and something else. They're they're that big. And I've actually seen one in person when... uh, when my fella and I went up to Cheyenne a couple of years back, and it is just incredible. They look pretty impressive. So in order to get that much steam built, it takes 25,000 gallons of water and 56,000 pounds of coal. This is just incredible. Um, and so why the big boy, uh, 40, what is it, 4014, um, the Big Boy 4014 is coming because we're celebrating the 150th anniversary of the completion of the Transcontin- Transcontinental Railroad. Kind of cool. Yeah, that was pretty neat. I wondered, I didn't, never did hear the story behind why, why they're doing the route, but that's pretty neat. So they started the route in May um, of this year uh, on the date that the Golden Spike was hammered in. And 
they started the route and they went all the way east. Now they're going back west and they will be dipping down and around um, the southern route of the UP railroad line. But honestly, Kayleen, it I got to say, even if my fella hadn't, you know, explain trains and how cool this is to me. I have been reading a little bit more history books lately, and I just didn't realize that trains didn't just take cattle out back east, but they also brought people back west. I wonder, I honestly wonder about those people that got on a train in Chicago or in Kansas City. and With a one-way ticket. <laughs> with a one-way ticket. Can you imagine that? I don't know if I could. <laughs> I mean, that is some bravery. And when you start thinking about um, folks like the the Harvey girls, they were unmarried and they were young and they got on a train with other young unmarried women and went west to have a job and maybe a life away from everything they ever knew. I, wow, that is some gumption. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> So anyway, I, I, if you get a chance uh, this year while the big boy is um, coming through town, big boy engine 4014, um, Garrett and I, we also got to see they were re- refurbishing 4014 in the wheelhouse at Cheyenne, Wyoming, and we could see glimpses of them working on it when we drove past, and it was kind of cool. That does sound cool. So Looks like you can see a map of the route that the big boy engine 4014 is taking on the UP website, which is www.up.com. So what else is on your mind, Jenny? Ready for them family dinners next week? Oh, yeah, aren't you? (laughs) No. (laughs) Is anybody ever really ready? For the, I'm not going to say it, bad word. (laughs) This family dinners. (laughs) Did you see the meme that's, uh, welcome to your 30s, you buy the turkey now? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That was my sister-in-law's request because the last two years, my husband and my brother-in-law, Jeff, have fried a turkey. So we've been in charge of getting the turkey, Mm -hmm. brining the turkey, and then bringing it to her house, which is an hour and a half away. So it's kind of a process. Your brine is pretty good though. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Is it a proprietary secret? No, it's off the the Traeger website. (laughs) It's kind of, kind of a different flavor and Cheap bourbon whiskey? Yes. <laughs> no, no, per, no pearl, no pearl snap snap snaps shirts. <laughs> <laughs> I guess you could have pearl snaps on while you're doing it. But. You know what? If you put pearl snaps on your turkey when it's all plated before you start carving it and take a picture, I will laugh so hard and I will make sure that we we spread that far and wide. Tag Jason Boland in it? Yeah, Jason Boland needs to see the uh, cheap bourbon whiskey <laughs> pearl, pearl snap, snap turkey. <laughs> <laughs> but I haven't bought the turkey yet, so I gotta figure out when I'm gonna do that so it can thaw and then we can brine it and oh, have it, it ready. Oh, it needs to be thawing right now. I know. I mean, holy crow! <laughs> have you not seen all of the the memes across Facebook and Twitter of you know thaw it now, thaw it, put it in your fridge now? Yeah. Oh my goodness. Well, so here's the thing. I usually typically travel for Thanksgiving. It's not that I can't cook. I can cook. I can cook. I. I'm not too shabby uh, in the kitchen. You don't get to be a person of my size and have to get on Weight Watchers and not understand your way around a stove, Kayleen. (laughs) But I'll take your word for that. (laughs) When you're traveling, it's kind of tough to have, you know, a side dish or something that's all ready. And you're, you know, especially if you're two hours away from family or longer, 
So typically I bring plates and rolls. That was my Aunt Nita's always, that's always what she brought was the, the relish tray or the rolls. <laughs> oh man, if they ask you to, to do the relish tray, oh honey, oh I'm so sorry. Nobody's told you yet, but that's their form of an intervention that you need to go to Cordon Bleu or at cooking school. Well now you're lucky if she shows up, so she doesn't <laughs> like people that much, which I'm kind of headed down that track too. <laughs> I can see that. Yeah. You're lucky you have me to be the interpreter sometimes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. So what is your favorite food, favorite dish on the Thanksgiving table that no matter what it is, no matter what year it is, it has to be there? My mom makes this pink salad, I guess you'd call oh, the it. the pink fluff. Yeah, the cherry, yeah, it's cherry fluff with cherry pie filling and Cool Whip and mm -hmm. you're supposed to put pineapple in it and walnuts and... Is there marshmallows in it? No, there's, there's no marshmallows. Mar she doesn't oh. put marshmallows in hers. I, mine has marshmallows, crushed pineapple. Um, you can do uh, some orange slices or some mandarin orange, yeah. canned mandarin oranges. A little bit of, um, my mom always used a little bit of vanilla pudding, though, with the Cool Whip to kind of make it a little extra, yeah, you know, whatever. There was usually no, none left, but sometimes it's better the next day for oh, breakfast. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just have a few spoonfuls for breakfast, Good. I made that last year for for the fellows family and I I was surprised they looked at me as if I had a third head or you brought the orange jello with the carrots in it well, yeah I'm like guys it's it's there's no cheese in the jello no <laughs> my so, other my other one was probably be stovetop stuffing which it's out of a box but that stuff's good <laughs> My husband's like, you like that stuff? Yeah, it's better than that homemade stuff that oh, your family makes. My homemade stuffing, wild rice and sausage with mushrooms. <laughs> that stuff, will that'll fatten you up real quick, fast, in a hurry, let me tell you. I, I did light, figure out how to lighten it up, though, for, for my Weight Watchers points. I used turkey sausage. I know, I know. Cards and letters, please send them. <laughs> but, um... I use turkey sausage, and uh, I kind of cut back on as many breadcrumbs as I usually use in it, so it's a little less crummy, mm. you know. But um, it's it's still pretty hefty in points, mm, but yeah, it's I worth bet. it. <laughs> oh, the the wild rice that makes it worth everything. And then um, ever since I've been dating the fella, every Thanksgiving, every Christmas, all of the major meals. Um, his mom has me make the creamed corn. It's the recipe from the Brookville Hotel. Nice. And uh, that is an amazing recipe. I'm not really a creamed corn fan, but that I'll slick up. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, yeah, I just got to plan ahead. Hopefully I don't use all my Weight Watchers points on rolls and pumpkin pie. Yeah. You can't do Thanksgiving without pumpkin pie. I can. <laughs> uh, my time hop had a picture of a pecan pie that I made a couple years ago. I remember that picture. Yeah. Mm. I haven't made one since. <laughs> They're easy enough, but pecans are expensive. Okay. A little confession. I can I can make anything, but pie crust? Yeah. Pie crust is a challenge. My mom showed me her recipe for a pie crust, and it is amazingly quick, easy, simple. It is no fuss, no frills, and it's good. It, it yeah. doesn't turn into leather. It's flaky. It's really good. Problem is, is, you know, that whole rolling out thing and then getting it transferred <laughs> into the, yeah, mine looks like, I don't know, somebody's just 
it looks like a, a toddler's Play-Doh <laughs> problem. <laughs> the Pioneer Woman has a recipe that's pretty good. And it's I haven't bought frozen pie crust since I started using that one. Really? Yeah. It's pretty, huh. pretty easy to do. And you can even freeze it if you want to use it later. And yeah, it's pretty handy. I tell you what, Reed Drummond, she has figured it out, hasn't she? Yeah, she <laughs> cornered the market. <laughs> uh, did you get your uh, Pioneer Woman Barbie set last year at Christmas? No, I did not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I can do without that. That might have jumped the shark. <laughs> yeah. Did you see that she's got side dishes now that are in the frozen food section? And... I did. She is a one-woman masterpiece. I'm telling you, she is a force to be reckoned with, and bravo her. But I'm just going to say, maybe nobody needs that Barbie. (laughs) (laughs) Probably not. (laughs) The kids and I watch the show on Saturday morning or whenever it's on Sunday Mm -hmm. mornings, and just to see what she's got on, what she's doing, and kind of to see what they're doing on the ranch. But it's something different. We've been watching the... uh, what is it on the Food Network? The we watched Halloween Wars and what is the one that's on now? The Thanksgiving oh, something or other. Honey, when you're on Weight Watchers, you really don't watch the Food Network anymore. I'm just gonna say that's just like you know, you don't do that to yourself. <laughs> I probably torments my kids because I don't make dinner or supper right as we get home either. So we just watch the Food Channel for a while. <laughs> You know what? Um, one of our one of our friends mentioned the other day that her nine year old son and her eight year old son made dinner for the family the other night for the first time. It was spaghetti, and I can't imagine that it was that you know complex of a of a dish or whatever. But she was really proud that her boys made supper for themselves and and her or her husband. And I'm like, you know what? Nine years old, that is good. At least have one dish that if Something happened, you could feed yourself, <laughs> and it doesn't come out of a can. My eight-year-old can make macaroni and cheese, which I just have to walk away because the way he does stuff just drives me absolutely <laughs> insane, but he hasn't burned the house down yet. So. Well, there you go. I am all for, you know, kids should have some responsibilities at uh, Thanksgiving time and Christmas and other stuff. I've started pulling in the fellas' nieces and his daughter into the kitchen. And I'm, you know, I, I do what my mom did. Hey, stir this. Do you know why we stir that? Do you know why we add that ingredient? Do you know what it does? You know, measure this. And I just, just start giving them chores. And it's good for kids to have that interaction so that, so that they can understand that there's some applications to what they're learning in school, yeah. you know, whether it's fractions. Honestly, fractions were my worst <laughs> until... It suddenly it dawned on me, oh, it's just a pie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Again, food. <laughs> well, if you got a comment or a thought or your go-to Thanksgiving recipe, you can drop us a line at hpjtalk at hpj.com and let us know. Or call us at 1-800-452-7171. And do us a favor and head over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. So in this week's episode... We'll bring you the stories you might have missed in the November 18th print edition. And we're going to chat in studio today with web editor Shauna Rumbaugh about her cover story this coming week. And as always, we have Kayleen with the markets. Family is everything out here, right, Kayleen? Sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) And we hope you all have a very blessed week of Thanksgiving to kick off your holiday season. Thanks for taking a bit to ride with us here on HPJ Talk. 
Our cover story this week was from Kayleen. What about the birds? Kayleen, you wrote about pheasant habitat declines and what that means for some of our states here in the High Plains. I kind of thought that was interesting. I, I never really realized that pheasant habitat is declining. I spoke with some of the guys that are with the state fishing game um, departments in South Dakota, Nebraska, and, and in Kansas, and CRP is a big habitat for pheasants. And with all the acres of CRP going out and farmers getting back in those fields, the the pheasants don't have any place to nest or to hide out or whatever they do, feed. Cover. In, yeah, cover in the fields. So it was pretty interesting to see the things they had to say about each, each particular state. And like, for, for instance, in Nebraska, there was a lot of flooding this year and they had a lot of ground being covered up, ground being destroyed and... They can't nest in water. No, they cannot nest in water. So I didn't even think about that. Yeah. Huh. They had a lot of declines in, in the number of acres of CRP and consequently the number of birds that are born and ready for pheasant season, which in Kansas pheasant season opened, I believe, on the 9th. Yep. It's usually the first or second week of November, isn't it? Yeah. And in some of these states, not, not the ones that I talk to but there's other states farther north like Michigan and and Wisconsin they've seen actually declines in the amount of money that they're collecting for hunting licenses because of the declines in the the habitat so well and that translates into less money in the kitty to help with conservation efforts and wildlife efforts and and that sort of thing because that's what the licensing money goes towards is to looking at the habitat and making it better for hunters and and people that like nature yeah Huh. Yeah. Well, and I can imagine some of those um, rural communities up there in pheasant country, if you don't have birds, you don't have hunters. If you don't have hunters, you don't have hunter money. Yes. You know, I've lived at our house for the last 10 years, and we're surrounded by CRP, so I see mm-hmm. birds every day. And probably within the last four or five years, there hasn't been very many birds at all. Wow. And, I mean, you just, it's something that you just kind of notice is like, oh, I don't see any birds. Where are they at? Mm-hmm. But that explains it. Yeah. I kind of wanted to get a picture of a pheasant for this cover, and that didn't happen. <laughs> Every time I seen him on the road, I didn't have the camera. So, Well, hey, thank you so much for giving us a lot to think about, especially um, as we're in the middle of pheasant season, and um, we've got neighbors from the city coming out here. That's something to talk to them about as far as conservation efforts and, and what why we have CRP ground and what it actually does besides helping the soil have a breather here and there. Um, and, and if you want to read more about this story, be sure to, to look online at hpj.com, as always. Jennifer Thrower brings us coverage of the Kansas Governor's Conference on the Future of Water that was held recently. And on our editorial page, editor Dave Bergmeier writes about Thanksgiving and the inner strength of agriculture, We have the latest from Seymour Clearly in Washington Whispers, and Greg Haynes, CEO of Cattlemen's Beef Board, writes about where cattle checkoff dollars go in part one of a two-part letter to the editor. Dave also has a story about how Nebraska Governor Pete Ricketts has highlighted the national emergency that will ease transporting heating fuels like propane and natural gas to help farmers who are trying to run corn dryers in the middle of a challenging harvest. Have you been following that story, Kayleen? That is some, I mean, that's heartbreaking. Yeah. Um, There's a, a 
farmer I follow on Twitter who was told by his company that he gets uh, propane from to run his grain dryers. They asked him, how much do you have that needs to be dried down? And they asked him, please stop harvesting until we can get more. And the reason why this is a critical thing is in order to safely store grain so that it doesn't decline in quality, so that you don't have um, not just a quality issue, but a a safety issue because wet grain cannot be stored. It will actually start a fire. Um, (laughs) They can't harvest if they can't get it dried. Yeah. And if they can't have the the heating fuel to dry it down, they are up a creek. And this is just, I mean, for some of these guys in that part of the world, after the flooding, after last winter, after this summer, it's just one more thing that they can't deal with. Yeah. So our hearts are going out to y'all. And um, I'm, I don't know about you, but I'm turning down the thermostat <laughs> so I can do my part. <laughs> yeah, because our house runs on propane too, so. Well, good luck, folks. Um, In livestock news, Kayleen writes about Jordan Bell of Texas A&M AgriLife Research and Extension. And Jordan spoke at our Wheat and Sorghum U about how forage sorghum can make the most of water resources for quality silage for beef cattle producers. If you have a response to something you've read or heard, or there's a local topic that you want to bring to the attention of our readers or listeners, please write to us at journal at hbj.com or hbjtalk at hbj.com. Or call us at 1-800-452-7171. We want to hear from you. Joining us in the studio is web editor Shauna Rumbaugh. Shauna, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. You wrote a cover story for our November 25th issue about brain gain in rural America. Can you tell us where that idea came from and why that topic is one that folks need to understand? For this cover story, I spoke to Ben Winchester, and he is a rural sociologist at the University of Minnesota. And he has done, you know, a lot of research about, you know, trends in rural America and population. And he's found a lot of positive trends in rural America. But we, you know, if you type rural America into a search engine or something, you're going to find a lot of, you know, rural America is doomed, it's dying, it's, you know, it can't be saved and that kind of thing. So to to combat that really negative and the brain drain idea, which is where when, you know, 18 year olds graduate from high school and they go off, you know, somewhere else, either to school or to work, and then they never come back to their rural areas. So to kind of combat that negative um, idea. He, he uses the term brain gain because um, he has found that especially um, people in their 30s, 40s, and 50s are either returning to rural areas to raise their families or, you know, they're in some cases coming from, from urban areas for the first time and they haven't lived for um, in a rural area before. Here's a little snippet of Shauna's interview with Ben Winchester. Yeah, ultimately it's there to challenge and to counter the narrative around brain drain. Um, you know, I kind of strategically gathered that term because we've got lots of literature about this brain drain going on uh, mm-hmm. in the U.S. in our rural communities, and I, I think it does a disservice in the narrative to continue to use that kind of negative language when, in fact, it kind of you know ignores then the fact that we actually do have people moving in. Mm-hmm. So while on one hand we have 18-year-olds that decide to leave the community, 
with their high school education and very few career kind of prospects at that time. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, we have people in their 30s, 40s, and 50s moving in, and they're bringing their skills, their jobs, their you know experience, their education uh, with them. So in many ways, I would rather our towns start to recognize some of the assets they're bringing in rather than the so-called deficits that are created by losing our 18-year-olds. It's, uh, the top three reasons really stick out. They are, number one is the slower pace of life. And that is, you know, people want control over their commute. They want people, you know, spending more time with their kids. It's kind of, you know, defining life on their time. Um, so number one is just a slower pace of life. Number mm-hmm. two is safety and security, uh, which is especially high with people with kids. Mm-hmm. And the third top reason was the low cost of housing. Uh, everything changes. This world continues to change our communities, urban and rural alike. And I think some of the changes that we have witnessed in this country, uh, you know, things like consolidation uh, of uh, the retail sectors and just the mechanization of agriculture, like we've had all of these trends that do show negative impacts in our small towns. Mm -hmm. But in many cases, some of these trends happened like 40, 60, 80 years ago. And we still talk about them as if they're, they just happened, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so in many ways, we, we need a new narrative. We need to better understand what's been happening in our rural communities more recently. And when I say recently, I mean since the 1970s. And so we, um, we you know, I kind of go through and delineate, you know, mechanization of agriculture. You know, we you close hardware stores and grocery stores as we move to more of a regional economy. And while we do have these things that happen, uh, that have happened, uh, you know, every time they kind of, I, I say this, you know, every time we hear of a hardware store closing in a small town, there's one that closed in the middle of the cities. Mm-hmm. But you don't hear about them because in a big city, you've got three to five other options. Yeah. But if you're in a small town, it's probably your only one. Mm-hmm. And so we have to literally drive past these remnants of change in our rural communities every day. And it reminds us of what we may have been. And it tends to drive the narrative negatively without a real recognition of all these great trends that have been happening since. Um, and so while, you know, uh, we've got kind of these remnants of the past, we have got a lot of, you know, positive trends. People are, and kind of what I, I like to say is, you know, if we hold on to a negative narrative in our town, you're doing a disservice to every potential future resident. Mm-hmm. Because ultimately... People do not move to your town for pity. Yeah, I think, you know, the idea here is that no town is a one-stop shop. Uh, You know, like, while we may live in one town, we may work in another. And when you look at kind of the regionality of rural life, not just economically, but socially, like, you know, think about how far do people go out to shop and eat out? And then how far do people go out to play? And what what you find is that your home is in the middle of all this. Mm -hmm. Um, so, again, while your town may not have a pool, the next town over does. And this all becomes part of that middle of everywhere that we've got where we decide to live. And it's true in urban places, too. I mean, you don't just live and work and shop and play in the one town you live mm-hmm. in. Um, but ultimately, we live in these vast playgrounds around our home. And once we start to recognize the regionality of rural life, we can start to re-envision how we talk about our places and our place within the region. And again, it's a play on the narrative, right? I live mm-hmm. in the middle of nowhere. Well, hello, negative narrative. Like, we've got these negative narratives in our back pocket. Mm-hmm. And we pull them out all the time. And it's it just a, for me, it, it, it does a disservice again to every future resident that we've got if we can't talk positively about what we have. Because again, people are moving to our small towns every day. 
for what we are and what we will be. So we do encourage like communities to have newcomer suppers. And that's not mm-hmm. just a supper for all the existing residents to gawk at the new people. It's there to help newcomers connect with one another. And the number one outcome we've heard out of this is newcomers saying, I can't believe how many other new people there are here. Uh, boy, I don't know. It's been for me, I mean, I was born in 1970. Every trend I see in rural communities since I was born has been upward. <laughs> pointing in terms of the growth of the nonprofits, the diversifying mm-hmm. of our economy, the migration of people into our rural communities. Like, you know, if, if all those negative changes from the past hundred years, uh, you know, declared the decline and demise of our small towns, then show me all the dead towns. You know, that's something because we were talking about this the other day. Uh, as an 18 year old, I left um, my rural area, went to college and then I came out here to Dodge City, which even though it's a city, it's mm-hmm. a fairly sizable city, we're still out in western Kansas. Mm-hmm. It's a very, very rural area. I would say it was a net wash because I mm-hmm. ended up in a rural part of the world anyway. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I'm part of that brain gain, I yeah. would suppose, because I'm using that education I went mm-hmm. away to get and bringing it back here for the the tax base and the community benefits. Um, when when you were talking with Mr. Winchester or Dr. Winchester, mm-hmm. um, what did he say was attracting those 30, 40, 50 year olds? You mentioned that they want to come mm-hmm. out here to rural America, but what's dry, what's what's opening the door to them? Is there more opportunities for their jobs and careers? Um, you know, you mentioned schools, but mm-hmm. really, what what attracts them, and what should we focus on in, in improving so mm-hmm. we can attract them? Well, the, the number one thing is, I mean, the quality of life. I mean, that's even more important when, you know, in the people that he has surveyed, it's more important than job opportunities because especially for entrepreneurs, there are a lot of opportunities um, in rural areas and, you know, opportunities for leadership and different things like that. Um, but the, the slower pace of life is one of the things that people are looking for. Um, safety and security, especially the ones who have families and they, you know, they're, they're concerned for their, for their kids and, and their safety. Um, and then also the lower cost of housing in rural areas. I read an article recently about a couple that had been, you know, gainfully employed for 30, 40 years in a city and they returned to the family farm to raise cattle again with, with the family land or whatever. And it would, it's kind of along the lines of what Shauna was saying. I mean, they come back to a rural area. They want to slow down. They want to have mm-hmm. have all these things available to them, not that you wouldn't have in the city. But it seems like healthcare. If you're having an mm-hmm. aging population, healthcare would want to be one of those t- things that people come back. I could definitely see that, Kayleen. Especially if you're in your 30s and you're starting a family. You're in your 50s and maybe you're coming back home to take care of. Um, a parent or a grandparent or aunt or uncle that's been living in the rural community. I I can see how healthcare has got to be really key core of your Mm -hmm. mind. You know, I I also heard a story the other day on NPR about how rural hospitals are one of the things that they will cut first to save money is prenatal care and um, OBGYN stuff. And it's because um, they, they figure they can get that through a general practitioner or whatever. So there's, but we also have this large influx of women in rural areas that are farmers, that are working with livestock that can be dangerous, that are working with uh, chemicals that can be dangerous. We don't know exactly what 
you know, what those effects are. Um, and they had on there a, a veterinarian. She is a large animal vet. And uh, she talked about when she was pregnant with both of her kids, she was still working and she had some health care questions. If they hadn't had the female services at that hospital, she would have been in trouble. Mm-hmm. Uh, healthcare, it's, it's one of those things. What did, what did Dr. Um, Winchester say about whether it's uh, caring for aging parents, whether it's the senior care, what, what's out here for, for folks that want to come back and, and settle? Well, one of the, the points that he brought up is that we, you know, people think about us living in the middle of nowhere when really rural is in the middle of everywhere. And especially with the internet and, and things like that, it gives, I mean, people, people don't just stay in one place for, you know, they may, they may live in one place and work in another, they may play in another. And the, the regionality that people have is a, is a lot greater area than just one small town. I mean, and that, that's kind of the case for me. I mean, I, I live in, in Spearville and work in Dodge City, you know, we may go, we may go to different towns around here for entertainment or to eat out or something like that. So it's just, and, and I mean, it's, and the whole point of this isn't to, you know, you know, deny that there are some pretty serious problems that are facing rural America, but that there are also some, some positive trends to look at. I kind of got to wonder, did you ask Dr. Winchester or anybody, um, did the question come up, with all of these folks that are of an age in their 30s, 40s, 50s, what does that do to the political dynamic of a rural community? What does that do to the volunteer dynamic? Mm-hmm. Um, our local Lions clubs and our 4-H club leaders and um, just even on the city councils, are we starting to see a little bit of a change, a, a shifting of politics perhaps? And I'm not sure about the, the politics, but certainly, yeah, I mean, it, it's really important to get to get those people involved in the in the local community, and I know I mean I, I interviewed um, two two young women in Graham County, Kansas, who I actually grew up with. We were in the same 4-H club, and you know their mom was a 4-H leader. But they you know they're they're examples of the, of the brain gain. Also, they both went out you know lived in different states you know lived in a city, you know one lived in Kansas City for a while and decided to come back home to to raise her family. As, as the other one did. And both of them, you know, they've kind of carried on the family tradition of, of volunteering in the community. You know, you know, both of them and their husbands have been on different boards and been involved, you know, just really involved in the community and, and trying to, to give back. So you, you do take some of the lessons of what you've mm-hmm. experienced, your life experiences into whatever your volunteer, your, your or your, um, your service actions are. So I think that's good. That it's good. It's good to have outside ideas in some areas. What about the infrastructure? You know, some of these people want to re- work remotely or, you know, do stuff online. What what's going on there? I mean, that that is something that is definitely um, something that is needed still in rural America, and it kind of just depends on the location what's what's available. And you know, it's something that I think legislatures and different different leaders are trying to focus on to keep continually increasing broadband access so that rural people can have have that access. What about housing? I mean, if I'm mm-hmm. if I'm in my 30s or 40s and I've got an established career, I am not coming home to to rural America and living in a shack. I don't know about you, but <laughs> yeah. is there available housing of a certain quality? Now, that that is one thing that Dr. Winchester mentioned is that 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 
you know, remains a challenge now because it's, there was kind of a almost a boom in the 90s and a lot of the housing that was available, you know, was was taken. So it is, it, you know, it, it, there has been a little bit of a decrease again in the in the 2010s. And, and that's partly because, you know, people want to move into rural areas, but there may not be necessarily any houses for them to move into because we still have an aging population and they're just, you know, there aren't any new houses available. Well, and just trying to find... Um just trying to find a lot that's open in some of these communities that you can buy to build on is tough. Uh, just trying to find one that you could tear down and build on is tough. Um, there's a lot of communities that some of those houses should probably be torn down or condemned, but you know somebody owns them and, and doesn't want to do that for one reason or another and keeps paying the taxes on them. And so that's that's how it goes. These are fascinating. Is there anything else, any final thoughts that you have on brain gain in rural America? I'm really excited, honestly, because mm-hmm. every time we go to a meeting with farmers, Kayleen, you've, you've heard this before, they're just all moving away and they ain't coming back. Well, now be patient. Sometimes they do come back. Well, and, and I think it's also important for people who live in rural areas themselves to, to remember, you know, what, what they're saying about their community because they may say that they want people to move in, but then if they ever have someone come into town or um, someone who's new that has moved into town, their reaction might be, well, why would you want to move here? And it's kind of like, well, why are you, why are you being so negative? I mean, you should be encouraging them and telling them what's, what's good about your community, not, you know, acting like they're crazy for wanting to come there. I couldn't say that better myself. What about you, Gailing? I have to agree with Shauna because I don't know how many times I've heard, you're from Dodge City? <laughs> <laughs> and you've had to say, that's the smell of money. Yes, more than once. <laughs> well, thank you, Shauna, for bringing the cover story to us this week on brain gain. Right, Kayleen? Yeah, all, all the stuff that she had to say kind of gives me hope for the future for my boys coming back to rural America If you want to read more about the story, look for that in your November 25th issue in your mailbox soon, and you can read it online at www.hpj.com. Thanks, Shauna. Thanks. Your grain market prices from Dodd City's Pride Ag Resources on November 12th. Corn was down at $3.68. Wheat was up at $3.89. Milo was down at $3.13, and soybeans were down at $7.92. If you'd like to have crop or livestock targeted news emailed directly to you, sign up for our HPJ Direct email newsletters at our website, hpj.com signup. Simply select the topics that interest you, and you'll receive updates on them directly to your email. Be sure to watch for that print issue again of High Plains Journal in your mailboxes November 25th to learn more about brain gain in rural America. And you can always look for additional content online anytime at www.hpj.com. Remember, you can subscribe for free to this podcast at hpj.com podcasts. You can also find us on places like iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you download podcasts. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at HPJ Talk for news and commentary throughout the week. We're also on Instagram. 
and you can always drop us a line at our email, hpjtalk at hpj.com. Thanks again for riding along with us, folks, as we bring ag news and commentary to you. And remember, as Dodge City's favorite lawman, Wyatt Earp, once said, fast is fine, but accuracy is everything. We'll see you on the trail. This has been a production of High Plains Journal, all rights reserved. Dirt road in a gooseneck, saddle up with me. Dry land in God's country, crops far as I can see. Headlights on both ends of my day.